0: Welcome to the Recent Speeches podcast presented by BYU Speeches, featuring inspiring new devotionals and forums given each week on BYU campus. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. I'm delighted to have been invited to think with you all for a few minutes today about what it means to be educated as much of my life has been dedicated to the exploration of that question. During our first week of college in 1964, my freshman class gathered in a cavernous auditorium designed to look like a medieval hall in order to hear an address from the college president. The ceremony was to be the capstone of our orientation week. This was Bryn Mawr, a venerable institution founded in the late 19th century to provide university-level education for women at a time when that was a revolutionary notion. From its beginnings, it had been a place of very serious intellectual ambition, and that had inspired many of us in attendance to choose to come there. The president, Ms. Catherine McBride, embodied that seriousness to the point of being downright intimidating. She had been president since before any of us were born. She had her hair pulled back in a tight bun and a stern and forbidding demeanor that made an indelible impression on us all. A half century later, I found myself a college president addressing gatherings of newly arrived freshmen. And I fear that what I said on those occasions was likely little noted nor long remembered. But much of Ms. McBride's message has stayed with me to this day. I was struck, first of all, that she repeatedly referred to our work in an almost reverential way, the way one might describe an author or an artist's oeuvre. We were not just going to take classes or decide on majors. These would be part of a more all-encompassing understanding of our purposes. It gave what we were embarking on a new kind of importance, almost a transcendence. But even more memorable for me was another emphasis in her remarks. Learning, she said, must begin with humility. To truly learn, you must open yourself up to the notion that you have a lot to learn, that what you do not know is close to infinite. A sense of ignorance fuels the desire to overcome it. Humility is a prerequisite for becoming educated. Many of us present that day had a kind of deer in the headlights approach as we faced our first days of college. If we were supposed to be humble, it wasn't going to be all that hard. But Ms. McBride intended a more lasting humility. It was not meant to be a posture just for the initial weeks of our college experience was not an outlook later to be abandoned as we reached the lofty status of juniors or seniors. Humility should be a permanent commitment and condition because knowledge itself was endless. There would always be more to know than we had already learned. Our work, our education would never be complete. Education is not a destination. One can never say, great, now I have my BA or my PhD or my MD or my MBA or my JD or whatever it might be and conclude, now I am educated. Education is a process and a vocation, always a work in progress. I am still becoming educated. Ms. McBride was herself known for always asking, what can I learn from this? As long as life lasts, so too do the opportunities to learn anew. We need to make sure we are open and ready for them. Making humility the source and even the engine of learning has some significant implications for how we pursue that goal. The first I've just mentioned, education is lifelong because what you don't know will always exceed what you do. But embracing humility involves other imperatives as well. Almost by definition, humility is the opposite of narcissism and self-absorption. Education must be about seeing and knowing more than just about ourselves. Education requires us to look beyond our own experience and seek to understand our lives within a broader context. There are many intellectual avenues by which to accomplish this. The requirements of the undergraduate curriculum here at Brigham Young University outline a number of them, endeavoring to illuminate many of the pathways you might choose to follow. You have 187 possible majors. They range across all the sciences, social sciences, and humanities. The infinity of the galaxies or the complexity of a single human cell are sobering reminders of the enormity of the universe in which we occupy such a minuscule place. Literary study takes us beyond ourselves as well, introducing us to characters and circumstances outside our own experience. The insights of a novelist or a playwright or a poet help us to get inside someone else's head, to see the world from a different perspective through others' eyes. Literature is often described as nurturing the sense of empathy, of our ability to imaginatively project our own consciousness into that of another human being or theirs into us. It encourages us to notice that which we might otherwise not see. Anthropology is another such avenue. In its pursuit of ethnography, it urges us to look at other worlds, at places and cultures that may seem strange. And disorienting, humbling as we come to recognize our dependence on the taken for granted assumptions of our own world. We seek to understand how people different from ourselves interpret their own behavior, how they construct habits, relationships, and beliefs. Why do people eat certain foods and not others? Why, by implication, do we? Why do they marry certain people and not others? How and why do different societies treat death differently? And what rituals do they observe to mark the meaning of those choices? Every field on offer here at BYU can enable you to develop a new perspective on your life and experience if you open yourself to being a little disoriented, to seeing your own assumptions and choices as contingent, to examining their foundations in order to understand them anew. The field of history to which I've devoted my life and career is one that I have found particularly suited to pose questions meaningful to my own experiences. James Baldwin once wrote, and I quote him, people are trapped in history and history is trapped in them. But learning and questioning can offer a means of escaping that entrapment. A true understanding of the past can disentangle us from lingering vestiges of harmful assumptions that may in hidden ways influence us still. Just as literature or anthropology or the sciences help us to see beyond ourselves, history enables us to do similar work by placing our lives in a context of time as well as space. It can help us understand what brought us to where we are and thus free us to see how we might act in order to move towards where we want to go. A few years ago, I published a book about Americans' attitudes towards death in the 19th century, asking how they were affected by the enormous human cost of the Civil War. I was deeply moved by the many letters and diaries by soldiers and civilians alike, describing bereavement and loss. But I was also struck by how our forebears lived in a world very different from our own. Modern American society has often been described as one that denies and endeavors to hide death. My colleague, Atul Gawande, a distinguished surgeon who is also a best-selling author, has written powerfully about this. Mortality was not one of the things he learned about in medical school, he explains. There was a deep, and I quote him, Reluctance to honestly examine the experience of aging and dying. The reality of death in our culture, he believes, has been largely hidden. In 19th century America, I found in my research, things were quite different. Of course, in an age of high infant mortality, an age before the discovery of the germ theory and antibiotics, mortality would have been more difficult to avoid or deny but 19th century americans chose to give death a central place in their systems of belief by acknowledging that life will end they insisted a person embraces a sense of life's preciousness because it is finite life must not just be treasured but used to its fullest purpose awareness of death they believed gave life deeper meaning and purpose reading about how our forebears approached the devastation of civil war whose death toll measured the equivalent of more than 7 million people in the United States today. I was made vividly aware of the choices our contemporary society has made in its approach to death. Choices choices quite different from those available to Americans just 150 years ago. Our reluctance to think about death as Dr. Gawande illustrates in his moving book, Being Mortal, has led us to wanna hide the aging and dying in nursing homes, to avoid speaking about death to individuals left to confront it alone, to fail to consult with the dying about what they most hope the quality of their last days and weeks might be. But my excursion into the past made made me see these attitudes are not inevitable. People in other times and places have thought and acted otherwise. We would do well to open ourselves to what those from other times and places might tell us. Dr. Gawande urges us all to make other choices to reform the experiences of aging and dying in a way that brings greater compassion to those facing the end of life. Dr. Gawande published his book well before the pandemic brought the realities of death in our country much closer to some of the experiences of the 19th century. When COVID-19 struck, we had no antibiotics that could end the spread of this disease. We had inadequate preparation and facilities for the sick and for those who died. We were as unprepared for the enormous death toll as 19th century Americans had been for the losses of the Civil War. When I learned last spring of a field hospital erected in Central Park, and coffins piled up in refrigerated trucks awaiting burial. I felt I had been transported to another era I had only known through books and manuscripts. We had assumed a kind of confidence, even arrogance, that reassured us we were beyond anything like that. Immune, we might say, meaning it both literally and metaphorically. But we were not. We were facing some of the same dilemmas. And we're ourselves now struggling to retain not just our lives, but our sense of humanity and decency in face of the epidemic's demands. We could learn much about managing mass death by opening ourselves up to listen to the voices of those who have preceded us. As classicist Kyle Harper has written in an op-ed comparing our pandemic to a plague that ravaged ancient Rome, and I quote him, History is powerful because we can identify with the hopes, follies, and sorrows of those who have come before us. In recognizing the limits of their power in face of nature, we can also acknowledge our own. But these admissions of frailty, he urges, and I quote him again, should not make us fatalistic. Rather, it should inspire us to be less complacent. A deepened humility enables us not just to see more clearly, but to act, to understand our choices differently as we place them in the context of choices made by others in other times and places. It is both clarifying and empowering. And just as humility is a foundation for education, so education reinforces that humility. My research on death and 19th century Americans led me to believe there were things I could learn from them, things that they might have understood better than I did. But a lot of my investigations into the past have led me to a quite different set of conclusions. Many historical figures from that era believed, expressed, and actively defended views that today we find abhorrent. As part of a broader racial reckoning in this country, we are confronting and condemning those views. We are removing monuments and statues and building names intended to honor those who devoted their lives to advancing ideas and policies sharply at odds with our present day commitments to equality and justice. We are right to be doing this. We should have stopped honoring such individuals long ago. We are just to claim in this instance that we know better than the past. So how then do these principles of openness and humility fit in? How can we be educated by listening to those we deplore as well as those we admire? I wrote my PhD thesis and first book about a group of pre-Civil War Southerners who defended slavery. Looking back, I'm sure that I was influenced in choosing this topic by having grown up in segregated 1950s Virginia, where all the adults influential in my life accepted and supported the indefensible racial status quo. These were the people who instructed me in the principles of Christianity in Sunday school and the principles of American democracy in my school classrooms. How had those I loved and even looked up to convinced themselves to accept a system so patently wrong, un-American and un-Christian? I wondered a lot about this as a child, and at the age of nine even defied my parents and wrote a letter to President Eisenhower demanding that he support school integration. Nearly two decades later, my Ph.D. thesis represented another way of posing the same question but this time to the inhabitants of a different century. How could white Southerners of the pre-Civil War era who regarded themselves as decent Christian people who got up in the morning believing they were righteous and moral, come not just to tolerate, but to actively defend such a cruel and unjust system. They were seen and saw themselves as upright citizens. How did they convince themselves of these despicable beliefs and justify their loathsome actions? And here's where the humility part comes in. How might we today be deluding ourselves in ways not unlike those in which they deluded themselves? How do the mechanisms of self-justification and moral blindness operate? How did these antebellum Southerners define and understand their choices? How might we today, reflecting on their lives, be more clear-sighted about our own choices? I often wonder what our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren will find appalling about us. That we eat meat? That we're not doing more about climate change? That one certainly. I hope that they will not just condemn and dismiss us, but endeavor to understand how we saw our options as we sought to live what we intended to be decent moral lives. I believe that if we approach the past with the goal of understanding rather than judging, we have the opportunity to learn from the shortcomings as well as the achievements of our forebears. If we can comprehend the sources and mechanisms of their blindnesses, perhaps we can better equip ourselves to acknowledge and confront our own. Studying history has diminished my eagerness to judge or condemn people in the past and present and has enhanced my desire and I hope my capacity to understand and to see the world through others' eyes. Viet Thanh Nguyen, who fled Vietnam with his family at the age of four, has written powerfully about the history and memory of what we in the United States call the Vietnam War. Confronting the difficult truths of the past, he argues, is essential to acting ethically in the present. Let me quote him. Reminding ourselves that being human also means being inhuman is important simply because it is so easy to forget our inhumanity or to displace it onto other humans. If we do not recognize our capacity to victimize, then it would be difficult for us to prevent the victimization carried out on our behalf, or which we do ourselves. History humbles us by revealing our capacity to victimize, but in that revelation, it equips us with the possibility of resisting those instincts and perhaps even overcoming them. I want to consider another manner in which humility is central to the lifelong project of education. And this has to do with the humility of acknowledging that we are lucky. No matter how many obstacles we have overcome, we have received our education in some measure through no cause of our own. Our parents, our health, our schools, our teachers, our coaches, our financial aid, a book that changed our lives. Predecessors who fought for access to education, someone who guided us, someone who propped us up when we were down, persuaded us to persevere and not give up. We are all the product of much more than ourselves. Our search to become educated is made possible by those who came before us and those who walk alongside us. Learning occurs in communities, the community of those who have accumulated the knowledge we seek to master the community that enables us to acquire it for ourselves. We're not hardwired to recognize this. We tend to attribute meaning, logic, cause to things that may be in large part fortuitous. We tend to overemphasize our own agency. Now, I don't want to belittle all that each one of you has done to earn your way to BYU and to thrive here. You should have great pride in all of it. But the opportunities we enjoy can come to seem like entitlements, ours because we deserve them. Part of becoming educated is understanding things might have been otherwise and accepting the obligation that comes with that recognition. Think of those who have not had our luck. Think of Malala, who was shot because she was determined to go to school. Think of enslaved men and women in the pre-Civil War South risking severe punishment by secretly learning to read, although it was forbidden by law. Think of Helen Keller, unable to see or hear, who learned to read by tapping out words on her teacher's palm and then went on to graduate from college and write 14 books. Think of all those who faced similar or even higher obstacles and not been able to find a path to overcome them. Education ought to be a right. But in too many instances in the world, in too many places in the world, it remains a privilege. We have been extraordinary beneficiaries of this privilege, and we must not take that for granted. When we acknowledge that reality, we accept responsibility to make sure that the education that has enabled us to see a world beyond ourselves also compels us into serving those whose luck did not for whatever reason, put them in the same spot we occupy. Each one, teach one. It's a saying often attributed to slavery times and the obligation that rested on any enslaved person who learned to read, to then teach someone who hadn't. The phrase was also used by prisoners at Robben Island in South Africa, where Nelson Mandela was held for 18 years. Any prisoner who was literate had the obligation to instruct another. In 2017, Denzel Washington invoked the words in a commencement speech at Dillard University. Each one, teach one, he said. Don't just aspire to make a living, aspire to make a difference. Humbled by our good fortune, We should do whatever we can to share it. Though we continue to pursue it for our whole lives, we should never take our education for granted. A few years ago, the Graduate School of Education at Harvard adopted a motto that it emblazoned on banners and brochures and fundraising appeals. It was a great double entendre learn to change the world. Meaning number one, Learn in order to change the world. Education changes the world by implication. The school of education is in a field that really matters. But also meaning number two, learn how to change the world, which the words imply one can do by acquiring specific skills and approaches at the ed school. The phrase is at once an invitation. Come and learn how to change the world. And a statement of fact. Education changes the world. Change, the message is, lies at the heart of what education does, how it empowers us, and what it demands of us. Seeing beyond ourselves enables us to imagine and act on behalf of a different future. The research mission of universities that rests at the heart of higher education is fundamentally about change. At Harvard, the essential question we ask as we consider appointing a professor is, what has this person done to alter and enhance our understanding of the world? We tenure faculty who have made new contributions to knowledge, who have transformed their fields, and are eager to share these new findings with their students. Here at BYU, recent faculty discoveries range from insights into how family structures affected the Founding Fathers' votes on the Constitution, to the effects of social media on suicide risk for teenage girls, to the implications of ice sheet dynamics for historical ecosystems. Students at BYU are themselves already involved in making scholarly contributions to the store of human knowledge analyzing data sets from 1918 to better understand the nature of pandemics, designing thermal imaging systems to detect wildfires, using machine learning to solve a complex chemical problem. They too are caught up in the change that is fundamental to the educational process. And the centrality of this change is closely tied to the imperatives of humility I've been describing. To seek to be educated is to be willing to submit ourselves to a process of growth, to say that we are willing to alter parts of ourselves in order to take on new ones. BYU's mission statement aspires to an education that is, and I quote it spiritually strengthening, intellectually enlarging, character building. To strengthen, to enlarge, to build, is necessarily to change. A senior at BYU sees a different world from the one she knew as a freshman. The wider contexts and perspectives of the fields I have described will have defined a new universe, one shaped by the new galaxies or the past centuries her studies have revealed to her. A larger universe than the more limited one with which she entered. An appropriate humility will have imbued her as well with the sense of appreciation and responsibility that guarantees that her education will not just enable, but compel her to seek to build a better world. She will have learned to change the world. The centrality of change to education brings me to the second H of my title, hope. In its very essence, education is about hope and about the future. The 35,000 students at BYU came here with aspirations about what education could make possible, about how their lives would be changed and improved as a result of the time they spend here. And BYU has high hopes for all of you. Education casts its eye on creating a different future a different personal future for those who grow into doctors or lawyers or nurses or accountants or business people or teachers. But this university emphasizes that it seeks more than training. It recognizes that education must be about a different future, not just for ourselves as individuals, but for a wider society that will benefit from the contributions of those who learn. That is an ideal at the heart of American higher education. For example, it underlay the Morrill Act of 1862 that established the land-grant university system as the federal government's first and most sweeping contribution to our educational system and affirmed the principle that education must necessarily be a public good in terms both of its availability and its impact. These actions and these principles are founded in hope. They display a commitment to a future that will be better because of our determination to become educated. Dedicating oneself to a lifelong process of learning is to be an idealist, to reject despair, to embrace the future. America's founding fathers saw education as essential to their vision of the new nation and what it might become. Education would be a vehicle through which their hope and dream for a lasting republic and a more perfect union might be realized. They were certain it could not be realized without it. John Adams declared, Liberty cannot be preserved without a general knowledge among the people. Surely, James Madison concurred, it belongs to our colleges and universities to lay the foundation from which the future glory of America shall arise. Thomas Jefferson agreed, if virtue and knowledge are diffused among the people, this will be their great security against tyranny. If a nation, he continued, expects to be ignorant and free, it expects what never was and never will be. Jefferson, as you know, founded a university to embody these principles and regarded it along with the declaration of independence and the virginia statute for religious freedom as the crowning achievement of his life it was what he wanted to have inscribed on his tombstone in 1821 near the end of his life jefferson wrote of and i quote him the hope that light and liberty are on a steady advance the new nation was now 45 years old Enlightenment and freedom stood united together in his mind, moving forward together and fueling the hopes he had nurtured for so long. Our national project and our educational project have advanced together since our country's founding. Every extension of rights, every new birth of freedom has been accompanied by the expansion of access to education. Our hopes of being a more perfect union and of including more and different sorts of people within the body politic have been inseparable from our commitment to education as both cause and outcome of that progress. As Frederick Douglass declared, education means emancipation. And just as education has shaped our national identity and aspirations, as well as our optimism about our possibilities, so too it continues to shape us individually. Education is the vehicle we ride to the future, both individually and collectively. We will continue to be educated in one way or another until our very last breath. But our commitment should be to be educated well, broadly, with a humility that opens us to the widest possibilities for knowledge, and hopefully with an eye to how learning can enable us to contribute to a better future, not just for ourselves, but for all the world. Benjamin Franklin once said that the great aim and end of all learning was, and I'm quoting him, an inclination joined with an ability to serve mankind. It would be hard to sum it up better than that. Thank you very much.
1: Hello, I wanna thank you so much for your talk and for giving us perspective and a a distance. And I I feel quite lucky as a historian to stand with you. I'm Susan Rue and I'm Dean of Undergraduate Education. And I want to welcome all of you to the question and answer portion of today's forum. We're grateful to you for opening our minds to the value of a broad education. As part of this forum, the students have the opportunity to ask questions directly to you. And uh, we're grateful for them uh, and their curiosity. As students, we will ask you to state your name and your major and to limit yourself to one question. I'm assisted today by Dr. Dennis Cutchins, Associate Director of the Honors Program. So we will begin the question-answer period now for about 30 minutes. Thank you. Thank you.
2: Hi, Dr. Faust. Thank you so much for your your message and your address today. My name is Brady Early. I'm a senior at BYU, and I study economics and American studies. I wanted to ask... um, really about what I feel like was the heart of your address today of lifelong learning and service that comes from that. Um, From your experience as an administrator, as an educator, how have you seen or what habits have you personally developed or seen others develop to have a lifelong pursuit of learning and and continue to foster that after formal education?
0: Wow, what a great question. Habits. Well, I think um, one was just mentioned, which is curiosity, and one of the aspects of higher education that I think is so important is that it ought to feed on students' curiosity, but it also ought to spark it and intensify it. And I hope you're gonna you're gonna graduate. You said you're a senior. You ha- are majoring in economics and American studies. I would guess you might be curious about aspects of American history that and the American experience that you haven't had a chance to explore, that maybe you would continue to pursue reading, watching television, talking with others, getting engaged in questions in your community, that all of these ways can continue to nurture what I hope are seeds planted and um, fertilized during your college experience, and that Part of what college does is it puts you on a path to figuring out ways to do that and to retain that that love of learning. One of the things I was so struck by during my time as president of Harvard is how eager alumni were to come back and to engage with the university and come to lectures. Or and now we have so much online that they can do um, that they remember those intense years of uh, of kind of immersion in knowledge as as very precious and they look to sustain links to that as they as they move into the future so as i said in in the last section of my talk you are going to learn all your life whether you want to or not just because human beings take in all this information all the time but to be dedicated to the kind of learning you want takes um action, you have to commit yourself to doing that. And, and I hope that one of the things you'll take away once you graduate from your experience at BYU is some of the pathways and some of the links that will make that, make that possible and encourage it in the future.
2: Thank you so much.
1: Um, hi, Dr. Faust. Oh. Thank you so much for, um, uh, for your uh, talk. Um, my name is Alicia McIntyre, and I'm a PhD candidate um, in educational measurement. Um, and my question was that um, currently, uh, a lot of the discourse around higher education focuses on the return on investment of a degree. What would you say to someone with this view? Okay.
0: This is this was a real focus for me during a considerable part of my presidency because there were measures proposed to evaluate universities based on the earnings in first job of their graduates. And this drove me crazy because I thought it put the emphasis in the wrong place in so many ways. First of all, we mean to educate people with habits for a lifetime, as I just said to the previous questioner. We certainly don't think that someone's first job is what that person should be trained for. And I know training is, is a phrase that has a lot of meaning here in this community uh, as um, something that endangers true education. Because if you train someone for a first job, they're not going to be ready for the job that's available five, 10 years from now, you because that first job probably won't even exist within five or 10 years, given the, the pace of change in our society. So you need to give people certain kinds of abilities that they can then translate into whatever environment they find themselves in. Habits of minds, habits of asking questions, approaches to the world around them. But implicit in your question as well is the issue of, should even if we could say what someone's trajectory for a lifetime would be, do we just measure it in terms of their economic rewards? And the answer is, of course not. That would be so disastrous for us as a society. And, um, and yet, I say, of course not, because it seems so obvious to me. It's not that obvious to everybody in, in the world of education today or in the larger um, sphere of our society. But we have to emphasize how habits of discernment, habits of empathy, habits of interpretation, all of these things that come from a wide range of fields are critical to a society that functions effectively and ethically. And so Mm -hmm. I offer a brief always for the humanities and the importance of the humanities. And This is a time when support for them is eroding. But I hope that as you undertake your career in educational measurement, you will also um, be a voice for what I think was implicit in your question, which is not everything that counts can be counted and not everything um, that can be counted counts. A phrase that uh, I came across in writing my book uh, about death measurement in the United States. So does that respond to what was on your mind?
1: Yes. Thank you. Hi, Dr. Faust. Uh, thank you so much for enlightening us with your very hopeful speech. It was even material that I would consider for graduation. It gave me a lot of hope. Um, so speaking of hope, oh, sorry. My name is Daisy DeGames. I am a um, Sociology major here at BYU. So a lot of college students have lost hope in the pandemic. Um, so many things have changed with remote learning and so on. Um, But given that you have previously filled an incredibly important um, administrative role at Harvard, if you were still president during the pandemic, what would you do? What would you have done to instill this hope in your Harvard students?
0: What a great question. Um, Well, I think part of instilling hope in them is pointing to the end, that the pandemic will not last forever, that there are things we're learning from this experience that can enable us to make a better world when we're finished. We were just chatting before the formal um, ceremonies began. I was chatting with your vice president about what our universities have learned from the pandemic about teaching and learning. We've also learned things about our society and inequities in our society that I think we're going to address much more forcefully in the years to come. We've learned how amazing science is, the fact that we have vaccines in such a rapid time that we can do these things. It's, I think that's pretty inspirational. So there are lessons to be taken amidst all the tragedy and all the suffering. And I, I certainly don't want to diminish the impact of all that. It's been terrible. But what can we take from from this that will enable us to be better in the future? And for the lives of students who have lost a substantial portion of their college experience have uh, have um, had all kinds of hardships with families and separations and and everything else, what is there positive for them? Well, one of the things I see is I Recognize at least a reinforcement of this sense of service and sense of obligation to one another, a recognition that we're all in this together in a way that perhaps had diminished in forcefulness in the years prior to the pandemic. So, is there hope in that and in using the lessons of the pandemic to make ourselves more active agents in behalf of the world we'd like to imagine and live in?
1: Thank you so much.
2: Hi, uh, Dr. Faust. Thank you so much for your, uh, your words. As a Latter-day Saint community, we believe very strongly in family history. And I was curious in how your understanding of your family's history has informed your education and you striving to um, learn with humility each day and how we as an American community um, can more broadly take on the responsibility and the humility required with, that comes along with our history.
0: That's a very <clears throat> pertinent question because I'm working on a book right now that is a kind of combination memoir history about growing up in the 1950s and 60s. And it actually, be- the book actually begins in the era of World War I focused on my great-grandfather and my grandmother and their experiences during World War One and the impact that had on them and on the family lasting decades afterwards. So I've been blessed to have a lot of primary material. You didn't say what major you are. Maybe you're a history major. I don't know, yeah. but you seem to have an interest in history. Um, I found a lot of archival material that's enabling me to do this. And my great grandfather was a general on the western front he graduated from west point in 186 in 1883 uh, and been in the military and then retired from the military but he came back at the time of world war 1 and so he was on the western front in some of the bloodiest battles of the war and his only son uh the, his only son was killed in an, he was in the air corps and was killed in an air accident so there's my great grandfather learning as he's commanding troops that his son has been killed and the devastation of that on the family and the impact it had on my grandmother. And then when she becomes a young woman and marries, her husband goes off to war. I mean, her son goes off to war in World War II. So the whole experience of the family was so affected by um, the demands of military service, the impact of war and what that did to gender relations in families and the the kind of disruption of marriages by this. So I've been extremely interested in tracing all of that and how it played out in my childhood when my father came back from the war and I was the product of the baby boom and my uh, family was part of the ebullient 1950s after World War II. So those questions of family and history intersect very closely for me and trying to figure out the relationship between one's individual experience and one's heritage and family environment has been critical to, um, I think, how I became a historian and the kinds of questions I wanted to ask as a historian about what was the South like, because I grew up in this segregated society. What has the impact of war been? Those questions that are part of my scholarly work have really derived from my understanding of the experiences of my family and the, the world in which I was raised. Now you had a second part to your question. The first part was about family history and the relevance of family history. And I forget what your second
2: part was. Yeah, if I may ask it, and I should also say, my, my name is Rob Nielsen and I'm a biology major. Um, a biology. Here. Yeah, um, my second part of my question was, how can we as Americans, uh, recognizing our history as a country, um, mm-hmm. take the responsibility and the humility required by that history into um, this this coming uh, century and and decade, I guess.
0: I think this is such a relevant question at the moment as we find ourselves in the middle of what now we're calling our racial reckoning. and What the history uh, of American um, race relations has been, the kinds of injustices in the past that must inform how we move forward. The phrase that, I find so powerful in our heritage is the notion of a more perfect union. The notion the founding fathers had that the union was imperfect in its beginnings, needed to be continually improved, needed to be more perfect. And that is an invitation, I think, to civic engagement, to our engaging ourselves with trying to figure out how those lofty ideals articulated in the Declaration of Independence, which we fell so far short of at the time they were written. Thomas Jefferson himself knew that. He was a slave owner writing those beautiful words about liberty. How do we close that gap and come towards a more perfect um, embodiment of the what I view as magnificent ideals that were articulated at a time when they weren't yet realized? So it to me, is our responsibility to keep pushing in ways that we now can understand more clearly than people in the 18th century understood, and that have taken on new dimensions as we've changed and grown uh, as a country. That, that to me, is the obligation that we have as as citizens. And it's also, I think, our hope. It's where the hope for the future lies. Thanks for your question.
2: Thank you so much. Hi, Dr. Faust. Um, Thanks again for talking to us today. My name is Nathan Whistlemore. Um, I'm a sophomore studying finance here at BYU. Um, I was just wondering, here at BYU, we're encouraged a lot to view learning as a spiritual experience. Um, And I was wondering at your time at Harvard, whether you were able to see benefits in connecting learning and spirituality and how that connection can impact um, somebody's education experience.
0: That's an interesting question. Harvard, of course, does not have the religious identity that um, BYU has, so that spirituality is not addressed as explicitly in um, Harvard's explanation of its purposes and presentation of itself. But it seems to me that implicit in what I said today in the notion that learning comes with an ethical obligation that that it touches on a kind of spirituality and inner awareness that um, would be consistent with what is explored so much more explicitly at BYU. Education, in my mind, has to be about values. You have to have values at the core of it, and you have to have the willingness to explore the sources of those values and the meaning of those values as part of an educational process. So the two are essentially inseparable in my mind. Thank you so much. Hi, Dr. Faust. Thank you so much for
2: your words and your work. Um, My name is Elizabeth Wallace and I'm a comparative literature major.
1: Um, So my question has to do with hope so you talked about hope being such an important principle for education. I think what's interesting about education is that we come across very difficult realities and and problems in our education as well. So for you, what would you say is is helpful to kind of have hope restored or to recognize hope
0: as such an important part of an education? Let me see if I understand what you're asking. Um, why is hope important? Or how do you restore it? Or
1: I suppose it's more how, how do you restore it? How do you keep that focus on hope?
0: Your question brings to mind my um, experience writing a book about death. And I had colleagues who didn't even want to talk to me when I was working on the book. They said, how can you Spend all your time thinking about this depressing subject and how do you bear it? Um, Don't tell me about it. And I found quite a different impact that this material had on me because I was so moved by the capacity of human beings to deal with such difficult circumstances and the... Impulse of human beings to care for one another, to sustain their humanity, to affirm the value of those they had lost, to perpetuate the memory of those they had lost, to really stand up in face of devastation and say, We met people, matter, humankind matters, human kindness matters, we all matter, what we believe in matters. I found in that a kind of inspiration because life is hard and terrible things do happen, but people's ability to transcend them, to um, make meaning out of them, to learn from them, to reinforce the fundamental good in others and in our families and our lives in face of such difficulties, that for me was a source of hope. And so I think I've described a um, situation in which hope might most easily be abandoned when such terrible things are happening. But it's also the reason for hope is in that situation almost all the more visible because it requires so much of people. And um, I think in part my interest in war, I'm teaching a seminar on war at the moment to a group of freshmen And my interest in the subject comes from seeing people be magnificent in face of intolerable circumstances. And that, for me, is uplifting. It is such a beautiful thing to see what humans can be and can do. Thank you. I appreciate that. So there's my source of hope. Sure. Thanks.
1: Hi, Dr. Faust. Uh, my name is Grace Solberg, and I am a history major. Um, and my question was really similar to the last one, but so I'm going to change it. Um, but you had mentioned that education ought to be a right, but it is in fact a privilege. Um, so what are ways that you think that we could make education more equitable mm-hmm. and more available to everyone?
0: <clears throat> Thank you for that question and for, for your earlier words, Grace. Um, I appreciate them. So what can we do to make education more equitable? What a great question. Um, First of all, we should make higher education more accessible and affordable. Um, We should improve our support for the range of secondary and primary schools across the country, which are so differentially supported. Uh, We should begin education early in life and make sure that children have a chance to develop their brains and cognitive abilities early on through great preschools. A lot of this um, needs to be done, I think, with public funds. A lot of it can be done through philanthropic funds, through community commitment. But I worry that we as a country don't really take to heart all those words I quoted from the founding fathers about how central to our national success education is, that we haven't recognized fully the need to make sure that education, which is more than simply job training is available, that we are educating citizens and human beings and ethical people. Um, So I worry that it's become a kind of private obligation rather than a sense of public good and that we have to do a a mind shift before we're going to be able to, Generate the resources that I described in the beginning of my response to your to your question.
1: Thank you so much. You're welcome.
2: Uh, my name is Andrew Burt, and I'm my major is American Studies. Uh, Dr. Faust, you're clearly a, an incredible leader of uh, of the nation as well as a teacher. Um, I was wondering what kind of attributes of leadership do you think the nation is most in need of today?
0: It's so interesting you ask that because when I was asked that as president, <clears throat> I would often say, essentially what I said about education here, that you know, humility is a really important part of, of leadership and listening to people and not thinking you know the answer to everything before the question has been posed and opening yourself up to the ideas of others. Because when you listen to people, then you also can... You learn from them, but you also figure out where they are in their beliefs and their commitments, and that enables you sometimes to be able to go where they are in order to try to bring them to where you'd like them to come. So it's not simply developing a consensus and letting everyone else tell you what to think. It's understanding what other people are thinking so that you have a basis for persuading them to move in the direction you think that your organization or your country needs to go. So, um, that would be what I think leadership is about. Servant leaders, I think, is a phrase that's often used that a leader is not about enhancing her or his own ego. It should be about serving the organization um, that she or he leads. And the way to do that is to make sure it's not about themselves. I mean, when I was choosing deans, I always wanted a dean who wanted to be dean because she or he wanted to do something for the school that he or she was being considered for, not because this would be a stepping stone to some other achievement and line on a resume. Leadership is about service.
2: No, thank you.
0: You're welcome.
1: I'd like to thank all of you for your questions today and thank uh, Drew Gilpin Faust for her thoughtful answers and We're so grateful to you for spending this time with us today. And this will conclude the question and answer session. Thank you very much.
0: You've been listening to the Recent Speeches podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts, including classic speeches taken from our vast audio library, as well as other BYU Speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith. Come follow me, the Prophet Joseph Smith